From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Well, what's there to say? Books don't talk. As you will see if you listen, I use words almost like music. First, a bilabial trill. Ra. Ra. Then an alveolar trill. Ra. Ra. And always he was reading and always he was writing. Once upon a time. The word is king, I think. There is nothing like sinking your teeth into a good book. And today, we mean that literally. We're going to introduce you to someone who just eats up everything he reads. Also, someone who hand-delivers hand-picked reading material to an international war criminal. Someone whose writing life was forever changed by watching the film 2001. Someone who turned defaced books into art, comma, and someone for whom a serial comma is more than just a punctuation mark. A pen, $1.49. A book, $14. Stories about writers and readers, priceless. Stay with us. How do you say this in English? I need some paper, a pencil, some ink. So if you are what you eat, this next guy is a genius. This is a classic Gregory Whitehead story, and we'll tell you what that means in a minute. But first, you really just have to listen to a taste of it. It's delicious. Mind, body, and soul. That's quite an ambitious title. Well, everybody I talked to before I started this told me I needed a one-liner to describe the performance and mind, body, and soul just just fits so good. Why is why is that? Okay, uh, the performance is to eat and digest these three books. I got one copy of the Oxford Universal Dictionary of the English Language, or one copy of Gray's Anatomy, and. Is one copy of the King James version of the Bible. So that's one for the mind, one for the body, and one for the soul. So it's eating and digesting. That's right. Whole book. Except the covers. I don't I don't have to eat the covers. That's quite a, a lot of pages. It's three thousand double sided pages and change. And over what period of time are you doing this? 100 days is the target, and so far, after two months, I'm pretty much on track. Maybe a dozen or so pages behind where I should be, but from the beginning, I knew I would have to close with a sprint. So that's roughly, what, 30 pages a day? Uh, Well, yeah, maybe, you know, it's a little more. On first impression, that doesn't strike me as, as an overwhelming quantity. The first couple of weeks, it was a piece of cake. I mean, I was just flying through these books. But when you have to reach a quota, and you know you have a certain number of pages every day. And at some point, the whole digestive tract, you know, from your mouth just all the way down, it's just an open revolt, you know. And just the sight of of a page can just make you go, you know, start to gag. I mean, look at these, look at the size of these dictionary pages. They are huge. 
So the the obvious question is, why are you doing this? I I get that question a lot. Uh, Some of it, I guess, just has to do with endurance and discipline. It's it's like climbing a mountain, but you know, I have I have a really really bad phobia about heights, so uh, I I, this, I couldn't do that. And I don't know. There's the whole immortality thing. The whole immortality thing. You know, becoming one with the word. I, it's like these three books are going to be around forever. They are going to be around. I mean, they've been around a, a long time already. You know. So I make them part of myself. I, I put them into my body, and it's just—it's like it's I can plug into immortality. Hmm. A number of years ago, I interviewed an individual who was memorizing the Iliad in ancient Greek, and he used almost the same words. Really? Well, Greek is cool, but my memory is—it's like forget about it. But then there's then there's my girlfriend who and she just thinks that I'm doing this so I can get on Japanese television. Japanese? Why Japanese? They are really into this. I I don't know exactly why. I, they eat all kinds of strange stuff over there because I've been there a couple of times doing this and. But I don't know. Anyway, I, but I've been getting press, Humango press in Japan. I notice you have three very different types of edition. Yeah, the Bible here on my left, it's a pocket version, and that means more pages, but they're smaller, so I think of them as my hors d'oeuvres. And the Grey's Anatomy in the middle is a standard paperback that you can get in any, you know, you can get. I got this one on, on Remainder, and it's cheap paper, goes down nice and easy. But the dictionary on my right, it's like library quality hardback. It is. It's, I'm, it's the main course, and I can tell you it is one very seriously chunky piece of buffalo meat. How do you relate uh, your uh, piece to the to the history of performance art? I don't know a whole lot about it. Somebody sent me a book that had some trippy pictures of artists eating all kinds of stuff. I think it was in Vienna during the 60s or something. But the book's like in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then how does the piece uh, fit into the corpus of, of your own uh, artistic work? I I haven't yeah you know, before this I haven't done performance art I you know a year ago I was training to be a chef I was in the culinary institute of America I, I just always had this dream to do one thing you know the one thing that nobody nobody else no other body something I could do with my own body that had never been done my full, before so you know my attitude was was just let's do it and my girlfriend said it's a you know it's a performance it's performance art it's it sounds to me like a pretty full-time job oh it's solid full-time 
I mean, if you're going to eat these three books in 100 days, I can tell you, you are not going to be doing anything else. So how do you finance it? Selling the covers. The covers? Yeah, I only have to eat, like, the body of the text. You know, I don't have to eat the covers. So my girlfriend knew a collector who bought the covers sort of in advance. This is somebody who collects all kinds of weird stuff in the art world, you know, very serious business. And in addition to that, then for cash flow, it's the gallery shows. The gallery shows? I get paid a fixed fee to set up my table for the day in a gallery and just chew book, you know. Uh, it's what I'd be doing anyway, and I'm just in a gallery. So far, it's been New York, Berlin, Paris, uh, Stuttgart, Osaka, Tokyo, San Francisco, uh, Cleveland, Philly, a bunch of places. Some some colleges too. Anywhere in England? Not yet. London would be cool. Oxford would be even more cool. I mean, you know, with the dictionary and stuff, that would, that would be really. Views been when you've done it in galleries? Uh, they've been. It's been total riot. I, it's some. One of my friends says I got to save all the art magazine clippings, and then as a sequel, I could just eat them. But there are. I don't understand some of it. I mean, one dude calls me quote a brilliant, almost hallucinatory embodiment of the corporeal aesthetic, translucently metaphysical, inflamed by the acid juices of neo-Deleuzian thought. I still haven't found anybody who can tell me what neo-Deleuzian means. I'm lost on that one. Uh, But has anyone objected that eating the Bible is, is somehow sacrilegious? I've gotten some negative feedback on that, and the gallery in Cleveland was picketed by a bunch of Mormons, but that's not how I see it at all, at all. I mean, it's the word of God. It's in my body. I'm, I am taking it into my body. And, I mean, there's all that stuff about the body being the temple of the soul, and I, I take that as word, mega big time, mega. Do you ever worry about uh, toxins in the temple uh, from, the, from the ink? Not, not really. And the Bible I'm eating uses soy ink. I'm not sure about the others, but... So far, I haven't felt any, any side effects or anything. I mean, I drink maybe five to seven big bottles of water every day, and that, that just flushes everything out. Can you uh, describe your actual eating process? Sure. It's about time for a little snack anyway. Let's see here. In the Oxford Universal, I am up to page... 1,335. 
It goes from none, N-O-N-E, to noose, N-O-O-S-E. Mm-hmm. It's got some words like none, non-ego, non-essential, non-such, non-intercourse, uh, non-natural, Nani-nani, nani-nani, non-performance, non-plus, non-sense, nonsense, nonsensical, non-sequitur, noodle, nook. It's one I've never seen before. Noology, the science of the understanding. It's from Greek. So I just tear it out and then tear the page lengthwise into more manageable pieces. I'll roll them up, you know, into almost like uh, a chaw of tobacco and then just start to chew. The key is water, lots of water because the paper's constantly mopping out your mouth. Curious, how do you feel at night, uh, lying in bed after after a full day of uh, performing this work? I feel good. I mean, sometimes I feel a little clotted or heavy, but then I just try to focus in on what I'm doing and the words that I've been that I've seen and been eating during the day. Because I usually take a couple of minutes to scan the pages before I put them in my mouth, and every night. All these words just kind of float up out of nowhere. It's a beautiful thing. Tonight it's going to be words like, you know, nani nani and and noology. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not sure how to ask the the next obvious question. You mean the next morning? Right. Well, it's it's pretty much what you'd expect. So, uh, do you have any plans for the next project? Uh Uh-uh. None. Zero. But last week I got a call from a publisher who wants me to write a book about the whole thing, and and that had to make me me laugh. Like, all the words that I've been digesting were going to jump back onto the page and get in somebody else's face. Mind, body, and soul. Mind, body, and soul. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. I believe that one of the principal ways in which we acquire, hold, and digest information is via narrative. I mentioned a minute ago that Mind, Body, and Soul is a classic Gregory Whitehead production. By that I mean that he bristles at traditional radio, where the facts are over here, the imagination's over there, and never the twain shall meet. Whitehead says that good programs invite the listener to ask questions about the nature of contemporary reality. Is it fact or is it fiction? If you're not sure, he has you right 
where he wants you. He loves that. And so does our next producer, Benjamin Walker. However, despite Walker's penchant for blurring reality and fantasy, this next story is 100% absolute fact. The seeds of our next story, called Remedial Theory, started when Benjamin decided that the only thing standing between a reticent, belligerent, unyielding despot on trial for crimes against humanity and an improved mental attitude was a good reading list. Check, check. Okay, we're rolling. Good day to you. This is Benjamin Walker. I'm in the Netherlands. I've just got off the train at Central Station here in The Hague. It's a quiet day. I took the train from Amsterdam to The Hague because, well, I wanted to see Slobodan Milosevic, who is currently standing trial for crimes against humanity. Don't know what The Hague people like to do on Friday afternoons, but... The trial was getting a lot of press, and pretty much every article said the same thing, how Slobodan was belligerent, defiant, constantly berating the magistrates, making scenes. But there was one article in particular that really caught my attention. It mentioned that the former dictator was doing a lot of reading in his cell, books by John Updike, Ernest Hemingway. For some reason, I couldn't get this out of my head. In fact, the image of this petulant war criminal lounging around in his cell reading books kind of kind of drove me nuts. TV, TV, I could understand, but reading. Excuse me, I'm looking for the Yugoslav Tribunal. What building is that? Um, Yugoslavia Tribunal. How can I best lopen? Keep going. Yes, to the right and uh, at the traffic lights to the left. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You know those posters you always see in the library? They say things like, reading makes you human, or read, discover humanity. Well, I've always taken those at face value. That's why I'm fascinated with Slobodan Milosevic. Here we have the butcher of the Balkans on trial, forced to confront his crimes and his victims, but yet, All he can muster up is contempt and scorn. No remorse, no empathy. But yet every night he goes back to his cell and puts up his boots and reads books. So I decided that obviously he um, isn't reading the right books. So I went to The Hague and brought him some better ones. I'm looking at myself in the window right now. I have all these wires and cables coming out of my pockets and I'm holding a microphone in one hand and a bag of books in the other. Maybe I should take the sunglasses off. Excuse me. One of the books that I brought him was Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. At the end of the book, Felix Buckman, who's the policeman of the title, has just learned that his wife's died of a drug overdose. He's flying around in his quibble car, weeping. Then he stops at this robot gas station where there's a middle-aged black man in a top coat waiting for his car to be filled as well. Buckman gets out of his quibble and, on a little scrap of paper, draws a picture of a heart pierced by an arrow. And then they have this conversation. Here, let me 
Read you a bit. The black man said slowly and firmly, but also a little loudly, these places, these coin-operated robot gas stations are downers late at night. Sometime later on we can talk more where it's friendly. I can tell you're feeling down at the mouth, you know, depressed. That's why you handed me that note, which I'm afraid I didn't flash on at the time, but do now, and I've had that sort of inspiration, or rather call it impulse from time to time during my life. I'm 47 now. I understand. You want to not be by yourself late at night, especially when it's unseasonably chilly like it is right now. But it's okay. I can dig it. Don't worry about it one damn bit. You must drop over. You can meet my wife and our kids, three and all. I have this scenario in my head. Slobodan is in court, only now his attitude is different. He's no longer cross-examining the witnesses. He's no longer dismissing anyone's testimony or scoffing at anyone's credentials. He just sits there in his chair with his head bowed, every now and then doodling something in his notebook. Then, a little Albanian girl tells the story of how the Serbian army killed her entire family. He doesn't even look her in the eye, but when she finishes her account of how her mother and sister were both raped and then shot up with assault rifles, he lunges out of his seat. The guards tackle him as he runs towards the blue chair where the little girl is seated. They pry a piece of paper from his outstretched hand and pass it to the judge. It's a drawing of a heart pierced by an arrow. Excuse me, sir. Is this the um, Yugoslav Tribunal building? Is there a main visitor entrance? Yes. If you go that way, and then turn left, and then you'll come to the other side of this building. Okay. That's the main entrance. And this is where the Milosevic trial is being held? This is in here, yes. Uh, okay, thank you so much. I also brought Slobodan Milosevic a collection of short stories called The Fierce and Beautiful World by the Russian writer Andrei Platonov. One of the stories is called Homecoming. It's about a soldier, Ivanov, who returns home after four years. His wife confesses to him that in her loneliness she had once reached out to another man. And Ivanov throws a tantrum at this, and in the morning he sneaks away to board an outgoing train. As the train pulls out of the station, he realizes that his two children are running alongside the tracks, chasing after him. Here, let me read you this part. Ivanov closed his eyes, not wanting to see and feel the hurt of the falling, exhausted children, and he realized how hot his chest had grown, just as if the heart languishing inside it, after beating uselessly all his life, had suddenly broken out into a kind of freedom, filling his whole being with warmth and with trembling. He was now aware of all that he had known before, but much more precisely and more realistically. Before, he had felt life through a barrier of pride and self-interest, and now, suddenly, he had touched its naked heart. All of Platonov's stories take place in an alternative reality of sorts, a reality where there is still pain and suffering and unhappiness, but at the same time, always the possibility of redemption. And in Platonov's reality, this redemption is never something cosmic or theological, but rather human and always within our reach. I like to imagine Slobodan exposed to this reality late at night in his cell, 
I especially like to imagine the look on his face when he puts the book down, and yet the reality doesn't go away. Hello, sir. Uh, recording devices aren't allowed in the building? No, sir. Um, yeah, I work for a radio in the United States. Where's that? I'd love to. Can't take take notes. Um, can I leave them with you? You will lock them in a locker. Okay. The courtroom was separated from the press room by a wall of glass, but I was able to sit pretty much directly in front of Milosevic, and he definitely noticed me because I, well, I waved at him. And, of course, a guard immediately came over and informed me that waving was absolutely forbidden. So I refrained from making any further gestures, but I wanted to, you know, point at me, point at the books, and point at him. All right, here's the deal. I'm in the main lobby now. They're playing on the monitors what I just witnessed in the courtroom. Um, the judge is about to ask Slobodan Milosevic if he has any concerns with the new eight-hour timetable, and he's totally going to go off, uh, which you'll hear uh, his translator, the woman in English. For some reason, he's not addressing the court in English today, but listen, okay, here we go. Yes, I did want to say something. From 6 to 8.30 is the only time in which I can use the telephone, which means two and a half hours in the evening. The possibility I have to communicate with my associates will also be restricted because that time has been limited to 8.30 when everything closes down. So I won't be able to use the public phone box which exists in the corridor either after that time. Let me repeat, I make no requests, I don't ask for anything, but I want it to be known what conditions I have been placed in. And if this is a way to abuse and mistreat the accused, then I would like to have this understood in this way. Because in the time that I have at my disposal, I'm not able to uh, see to my basic human needs, especially as you intend to have this last endlessly. But a human being does have the need to uh, breathe fresh air, to eat, and to communicate. But as I say, let me repeat, I'm not asking for anything. I just want this to be noted. Is that not amazing or what? Poor Slobo doesn't get enough time to use the telephone. You know, as I stood there listening to him go off about how he's being so abused, all I could remember was how back in 1995 I used to work at this little magazine store and we'd have NPR on all day, so I'd pretty much stand behind the counter and just listen to story after story about how the Serbian army was overrunning safe areas and massacring villages, and I remember all I wanted to do was find Slobodan Milosevic and rip his arms off and beat him with him. And now, ten years later, I'm here at his trial, bringing him reading material. I've just delivered the books now to the registry, and they've promised me that they will give them to him at the beginning of next week. 
I wrote a little note on the inside of the Platonov book. I wrote, uh, Dear Slobodan Milosevic, I understand that you love literature, so I have brought you these books. I hope you enjoy them. And then I signed my name and wrote my address, which is insane because, like, this guy could have me killed. I mean, what if he thinks I'm mocking him? Oh, man, I totally should have not given him the crime and punishment. The third book that I brought Slobodan was Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. You can see how this book could be misconstrued, but Crime and Punishment really was the main reason I went to The Hague. You know the story. Young Raskolnikov kills the miserly old moneylender after deciding she doesn't deserve to live. Then he spends a few hundred pages fighting his conscience, his family, a police detective, and the love of a young street prostitute until finally he breaks down and confesses his crime and is sentenced to prison. The book ends with an epilogue in which Raskolnikov finally comes to understand his crime and his culpability. But it's more than guilt or an acceptance of responsibility. It's transformation. Let me just read you the last two sentences. But here begins a new account, the account of a man's gradual renewal the account of his gradual regeneration, his gradual transition from one world to another, his acquaintance with a new, hitherto completely unknown reality. It might make the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended. Remedial Theory was produced by Benjamin Walker. It first aired on The Next Big Thing on WNYC in New York. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. So Benjamin Walker will do just about anything for a story. And I'll do just about anything for some mail. Send us some. Our address is ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Please ask. Your questions make us happy. As you will see if you listen, I use words almost like music. An alveolar fricative ejective. Ah. 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 Ba. Ah. Ba. Ah. Da. Ah. Ah. Da. The word is king, I think. My husband is big on civics lessons, so he decided that the children should write to world leaders. They wrote to Illinois Representative Jan Schakowsky, the President of the United States, George Bush, and the Queen of England. Jan Schakowsky wrote a letter back months and months later, admitting that the kid's letter got lost under a pile. George Bush sent pictures with no letter at all. And from the Queen of England's office, we got a lovely handwritten letter from a real live lady-in-waiting. Oh, the thrill of the mail the mystery of a sealed envelope, the anticipation of opening, the sheer joy at a great letter. Writer Jeff Greenwald's life was forever altered by a postcard he got in the mail one day when he was 14. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the middle of the story. We have to start at the beginning. My parents were kind of funny in the way they disciplined me and my, my brother and, and my sister. They didn't really have a lot of consistency. Like, sometimes they would they would just sort of pick up cues from from the neighbors and, and watched how they disciplined their kids and the things that they did. And then they would adopt that for us. Um, 
So we, we never really had a consistent idea of, of what was going to go on in our, in our family life. And this story takes place when I was really pretty young. I was about 14, and the movie Bonnie and Clyde had recently come out, and it was making a big sensation. All of my friends were going to see Bonnie and Clyde. But for one reason or another, my parents had talked to a couple who they, they knew a few days earlier who told them that Bonnie and Clyde was very violent. And it wasn't the sort of movie that a kid should see. You know, back then, 14-year-olds were considered kids. You know, today they're, they're running corporations. So they forbid me to go see Bonnie and Clyde. So I, I, I nodded my head, and I, I was very uh, upset about it. And my mother left for work, and I got on my bicycle, and I rode to the um, Mid-Island Theater on, in Hicksville, Long Island, which is where Bonnie and Clyde was playing. And I parked my bike, and I walked up to the box office, and there was Bonnie and Clyde starting in 15 minutes. And I was just about to hand over my money, but you, know, you have to realize I was kind of, I was a geek. I was, I was a good kid. I, 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 go, I was afraid of getting caught. I was actually, you know, a, a wimp. And uh, what was I going to do? Was I going to go see Bonnie and Clyde? And I, I was standing there with my money in my hand and, and looking up, and I realized that, you know, it was a twin theater. And in the other side of the theater, there was this, this other movie that had just opened that looked very intriguing to me as well, and it was 2001, A Space Odyssey just opened. I had loved, always loved the space program. I had watched all the takeoffs of the Mercury and the Gemini programs. I watched Star Trek religiously. I had watched the very first episode on September 8th, 1966. And uh, with my father and brother, I had watched every single episode. And I was like, 2001, a space odyssey. That, that, sounds, that sounds like it could be interesting. Uh, maybe a little less violent than, than Bonnie and Clyde. It might not be such a bad thing to see. I and mean, for all I knew, it could have been like a space porn movie. But anything with Bonnie and Clyde at that point. So I, I paid my money and I got my ticket and I went in and I sat through 2001, a space odyssey during this hot summer day. And I sat through it once, and, and then I, it was time for the 4.30 showing, and I sat through the 4.30 showing, and then it was time for the 8 o'clock showing, and I st- sat through the 8 o'clock showing. I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey three times in a row, and when I, when I came out of the theater, I, I felt like I'd been completely transformed. I had never seen anything so wild, so amazing. I felt like I'd actually journeyed into outer space. The same thing that, that the, the, these astronauts like Frank Borman and Ed White were doing, that I had flown in space, that I'd, I'd seen the Earth from orbit, that I had, I had gone to the moon. I, I was completely and absolutely seduced by, by this phenomenal visual experience I'd had. So I, I was savvy enough at 14 to realize that the real credit for any movie goes as much to the writer as the director. And I had seen that the screenplay for this movie was written by Arthur C. Clarke. I'd never heard of Arthur C. Clarke, but I went to the library and I saw that he had written about 213 books <laughs> with, with titles like The Sands of Mars and, and Earthlight and A Fall of Moon Dust. And I, I, I was just astonished. And I checked out eight of his books at the library and I read them all within a week. And I went back and I, I checked out eight more of his books and I read all those books. and I, I brought them back and I checked them all out week after week. And, 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 and two or three months went by until I had read everything that Arthur C. Clarke had ever written. And at that point, at the age of 14, I sat down and I took out a big pen and I wrote him a fan letter. And I wrote, Dear Arthur, my name is Jeff. I'm also a writer. And uh, I have some ideas that I think you might find very useful and helpful. And I, I'm not going to tell them to you right now, but I have a few stories I'd like you to read. But to give you some sense of who I am, here are some drawings of, of rocket ships and, and, and weapons of the future that you might, you might get some inspiration from. 
And I this this letter was five pages long, and and I if I I think if I got a chance to see the letter right now, I would I would literally, literally die of embarrassment. I think it would be the last thing I ever I ever saw in my life. I shamelessly I looked I looked in the who's who, in literature, saw that he lived of all places in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, Sri Lanka. I folded up this five-page letter, which was all written on graph paper, the easier to draw these spaceships on, and I I posted it to to Arthur C. Clarke in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And uh, I I pretty much forgot about it, and months went by, and I thought no more more about it, except I I saw 2001 probably about six more times in the interim. And then one day, out of nowhere, comes this postcard, and it is... It's a very simple postcard, just your standard USA postcard. There's no picture on it with my name and this funny writing on the front. And in the back, it says, Dear Jeff, received your letter. I will be at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City on such and such a date. Give me a call. Arthur C. Clarke. It was a short postcard, but I read it about 1,600 times, uh, unable to believe that it was true. And when the, the day came where, where, where Clark said he'd be at the Chelsea Hotel, I called the number on the card, and sure enough, they put me through, and I was talking on the phone with Arthur C. Clark, and he was saying, the Chelsea Hotel is off 8th Avenue on 23rd Street. I'd love to meet you. I enjoyed your letter. Come by and visit me. And I couldn't believe it. I, was, I don't think that I have ever been as nervous in my life as I was at, at that young age packing up the two or three page long science fiction stories I had written and bringing them into New York on the Long Island Railroad to show to the the greatest idol I had ever had, this science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke. So I got to the Chelsea Hotel and I was shown up to his door and I knocked on the door and Arthur C. Clarke, who was at that time 52 years old, answered the door with a big smile. He invited me in, offered me a cup of tea, his British roots showing, of course, sat me down and just spoke with me for an hour and a half about space, about his adventures as a writer, about his life in Sri Lanka, about what it was like meeting the astronauts, about whether or not he thought that it would ever be possible to go to the moon in my lifetime. We we talked about all these these pressing issues, and he gave me his press pass from Apollo 9 and, and, and a copy of this, this mock-up of the New York Times front page from the first moon landing. And uh, it was it was an astonishing, astonishing day. And, and as it ended, I, I kind of very hesitantly reached into my little day pack and I took out this envelope with these three short stories I'd written in it. And I said, here are the short stories I brought for you. I'd, I'd like you to read them. And he laughed and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, uh, young man, I, I can, I, I really make a, I, I, I'll try to imitate his voice. He's a beautiful British actor. I make a practice of never reading anything that anyone gives me because I, my, really, my agent doesn't allow it because what if I get an idea from somebody? There'd be a terrible lawsuit. So in this way, he very charitably and kindly told me to get lost. So I, I, I said, okay, and asked if I could use the bathroom in his hotel room before I left, and, and, and I did, and then I, I went back to the street, went back to the train. I was sitting on the train, riding back to Long Island, uh, unable to believe this experience I'd had when I realized that I had left the manila envelope with the three short stories in it on Arthur C. Clarke's sink in his Chelsea hotel room. And I was devastated with embarrassment. I didn't know whether to call him and apologize or what to do. I was embarrassed to call him. I was embarrassed not to call him. I just did what I was very good at at that age. I, I, I tried to forget about it entirely. And so I did until a week later when the manila envelope arrived in my parents' mailbox. And it was addressed to me in that same handwriting that I'd seen on the postcard. 
And I opened it up, and there were my three short science fiction stories, completely covered in red ink. Clark had read them, every word of each story, and had gone over them with a red pen, correcting all my absolutely idiotic mistakes, like, um, so you're walking on Jupiter, eh? Are you aware you'd be crushed like a bug? Or uh, uh, circling an idea that I thought was a pretty good idea, I said, he, he would write something like, hmm, I don't want to say anything, but perhaps you got this idea from my book Earthlight, which has the exact same concept. Or he would, he, would, he would write something like, oh, you see the Earth clearly from Mars, do you? It wouldn't look like much more than a speck. And I read through these stories with, with a combination of, of gratitude and just absolute um, you know, devastation by the amount of, of criticism. And then at the very end of the last story, Clark had, had put down his red pen and picked up a green one, and he'd written these words. He wrote, well, you still have about a million words of writing to do, but you're just about where I was at 15. It was, of course, a lie, and an extremely generous and charitable lie. But it was the lie that kept me going and kept me writing. And um, I've never stopped since then. And I credit Clark as being the catalyst, the force that put my writing career in motion. And as long as I live, I'll never forget that day at the Chelsea Hotel. And I'll never forget my wonderful friendship, which continues to this day with Arthur C. Clark. Jeff Greenwald, the aspiring 14-year-old writer, went on to publish five books so far, including Shopping for Buddhas, The Size of the World, and Future Perfect, How Star Trek Conquered Planet Earth. And fear crept slowly into his soul. Never in his life had he heard a sound like this. For it had never been heard before in the history of the world. The very faintest of warning bells sounded somewhere far down in the depths of Bowman's consciousness. There was something not really alarming, just unusual. He worried over it for a few seconds before he pinpointed the cause. M2973.04.21-93.106. Stroke, stroke Mars. Stroke Space Acad. 3005. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to Resound. High school junior year. Journalism class. Assignments returned with oceans of red ink. Were they corrections? No. They were page numbers. Page numbers of the style manual that explained the rules of that particular error. Grammar. I shudder just thinking about it. Let's take the serial comma, for instance. I didn't even know what one was until I had to write an intro for this piece. But writer Jeff Johnson wrote a whole essay about it. Chasing the comma. The presence or absence of commas provides the reader with critical information about the writer's intended meaning. The Associated Press Stylebook and Libel Manual, page 73. There are people who enjoy reading about grammar. Hence, the widely published works of Karen Elizabeth Gordon, such as The Transitive Vampire, Torn Wings and Faux Pas, and Patricia O'Connor, who wrote Woe Is I. I am not one of those people. 
though I gave it the old post-college try. I own hardcover editions of the three aforementioned popular style compendiums, but I never got around to doing any more than the occasional curious flip which qualifies as book dusting in my room. An attempt to read the little book, as Strunk and White's The Elements of Style refers to itself, stalled at page 11, where I underlined the fragment, the contents of a jar may be singular or plural, and noted, nice line, in the margin. That was a few years ago, and I remember that line better than the preceding discussion about the use of commas with parenthetic expressions. I feel confident in my grasp of the appropriate use of commas, even if I'm a little unsure about the difference between restrictive and non-restrictive clauses, participial phrases, and appositives. I enjoy making a sentence work well, just as I appreciate strange, thoughtful fragments. However, syntactical jargon is not my bag. In grammar school, I first encountered the skewed logic and inconsistency of a language I presumed to have already learned, even if I didn't understand some of its more colorful colloquialisms. That's when I was bolted to a desk engraved with some of those esoteric bits of slang and encouraged to go through the motions of learning the rules. Like my fellow students, I yearned in my every fiber for relentless physical activity and or a cheeseburger with fries. Deprived of recess and confined to our wraparound desks, we were assigned a less animated activity, grammar exercises. As adults, all but the most masochistic of us, teachers, copy editors and other grammarians, want as little as possible to do with textbooks of such torture. So we've taken a subjective approach to grammar. If it feels good, we do it. Our solipsistic syntactical habits and the guilt we feel about showing our mess in public keep the masochists in business. And while I'm not one of David Foster Wallace's militant grammarians, I do have some pretty strong feelings about the most ubiquitous character in the style book of life, the little curvy one, the speck with the tail, the comma. Talk all you want about the fancifulness of the semicolon, the breathless drama of the dash, but unless you're a hyperactive emoticon user, in which case, please spare me your slobbering, winking semis, or Emily Dickinson, you are not. Death kindly stopped for her, and together they dashed away. You face no more frequent crisis of punctuation than that posed by the comma. Consider, then, the serial comma. Strunk and White say yes. AP says no. The Chicago Manual of Style says yes. And most people say, huh? Commas, colons, and dashes. How do we present our lists? The serial comma debate centers around the space before the and in a list, especially a simple list like the one in the previous sentence, commas, colons, and dashes, as opposed to the more complicated list in the preceding paragraph. Strunk and White say yes, AP says no, the Chicago Manual of Style says yes, and most people say, huh? 
For me, the serial comma is the automaton of punctuation, the thoughtless pause. The popular linguist Deborah Tannen, who distinguishes between the pause-laden speech patterns of West Coasters and the to-the-point cadence of East Coasters, might assume I'm a New Yorker. Really, I'm a California boy who likes to make his own grammatical decisions. I use the comma when I need it, reflectively rather than reflexively, which is to say I haven't thrown the serial comma out the window. I'm with AP where it says, put a comma before the concluding conjunction in a series if an integral element of the series requires a conjunction. I had coffee, more coffee, and fake bacon and eggs for breakfast this morning. See? Compare that to, I had coffee, more coffee, and fake bacon and eggs for breakfast this morning. It's a matter of clarity, which is the spirit of the law. If writers are readers who use the dictionary when they encounter an unfamiliar word, good writers are those who dog-ear their style guides. As for experimental writing, to paraphrase a truism, you can't break a rule you don't know. The point is, don't be bullied by your style guide. Chicago calls itself the Manual of Style, but it lets up a bit in the subtitle, which reads, The Essential Guide for Writers, Editors, and Publishers. That last comma doesn't need to be there, if you ask me. The Serial Comma by Jeff Johnson. Johnson is a poet, musician, and senior editor at Kitchen Sink Magazine. It was in 1936 when I first found that people who speak together don't understand each other clearly. But when we read or write, we use punctuation marks in order to underline the meaning of our sentences. But we do not have that support when we speak. So why not integrate punctuation marks by giving them sounds into our speech? Then we can underline what we intend to convey to each other. A period sounds like this. A dash. An exclamation point is a vertical dash with a period underneath. The comma. Quotation are two commas. Or if you happen to be left-handed. Question mark is a little difficult. And finally the colon. The two little dots. Put them over each other, you may put them under each other, you can put them wherever you want to put them. <laughs> That's it. So before we go, we've got a fabulous Third Coast event to tell you about. To help me out, I've pulled Third Coast Artistic Director Julie Shapiro into the studio with me. This is the season for Third Coast that is all about the winners of our competition, the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation competition. And we uh, are, will be celebrating them in many ways this fall. Actually, right now, all of the winners are listed on the website at thirdcoastfestival.org. And you can even hear, you can see pictures of the producers. You can see pictures that represent the pieces. You can even hear little excerpts from the pieces. But the thing is, you won't know who's won which award yet because they're all listed there alphabetically. Okay, so in other words, you're saying that um, somebody in that selection of producers has won the gold award, someone's won the silver, but we don't know. Right, we call that the who won what factor. Okay. Nobody knows who won what yet. So when will people be able to find out exactly who won what? 
Well, we'll be announcing this to the world next Friday, October 23rd, at our annual award ceremony. And this one is a pretty special year for the award ceremony. Uh, it's going to be our first ceremony as an independent media arts organization. You know, we've had eight amazing years, almost nine amazing years here uh, with WBEZ. And now we are keeping a strong partnership, but we're going forward on our own. We're stepping out into the world as our own nonprofit organization. And this is our very first public event. So in honor of that, this year's award ceremony is truly going to be a family affair. So what's going to happen is Johanna Zorn, our executive director's husband, Eric Zorn, who's a beloved columnist for the Tribune, he will be the night's MC. Okay. And uh, music, live music will be provided by the fabulous Occidental <laughs> Brothers. And I don't just say that because my husband is in the band. Uh, a couple of members from the Occidental Brothers, they usually play incredible West African pop and dance music. They'll be on stage to uh, fet the winners as they come up to get their awards. Your beautiful daughter, Ruby, will be floating across the stage with the awards to hand them to the winners. She is so excited. I bet. Can I tell you how many outfits I've seen go by? Is this one good? Is this one good? Is this one good? (laughs) I'm sure she'll make the perfect choice. Um, And Johanna's children, Annie and Ben, will be helping usher that evening and showing people to their seats. So really, we've, we've extended the ceremony to include not only the winners and not only fans of great radio, but all of our extended Third Coast family as well. So there's so many th- reasons to come to this great night. It's You'll find out who won what. You'll meet incredibly talented radio producers. If you have any interest in finding out what we look like, we'll be there. <laughs> and um, it's also a great way to come out and support Third Coast in its first venture as an independent organization. Exactly. Tickets are just $25. You can get them right on the website by just pushing a button, um, and that will all the proceeds will go to support the festival going forward. And it's just a really, it's a joyful occasion. We'll pop some bottles of champagne and have some sweets afterwards, um, and it, it's a great opportunity for you to meet and talk to the producers whose work have just been awarded. And people are coming from all over. We have a producer coming in from Australia. We have someone coming from Moscow, all over the country. It's really going to be a special night. Another thing I really love about the award ceremony is that it's just so rare that you can get together with other people and share your love of radio and actually get to listen together to great work, meet the people who made the work, and you really transported for a couple hours into a whole nother world. And I, I just think you'd never, ever get that chance otherwise. And this is the chance to do that. Um, so there's more details on the website where also you can hear excerpts from all these pieces. So when you get to the award ceremony, you can sort of be rooting for your favorites already. Um, thirdcoastfestival.org. And you'll find uh, a link to buy the tickets. You'll find more information about the evening. And if you have any questions, you can always uh, send us an email. That was Third Coast Artistic Director Julie Shapiro talking about our upcoming awards ceremony on Friday, October 23rd at the Arts Club of Chicago. To find out more and to get tickets, visit thirdcoastfestival.org.
Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, an independent media arts organization in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. ReSound is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Carly Nix is our trusty intern. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear thousands of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts and sponsorship from Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and ExploreChicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and it was founded by Chicago Public Radio. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.